the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering. But we are socially distanced, so each of us doing our jobs from home. It's amazing to me to consider that it's even possible for us to do that, but that's the new normal for much of us. In fact, later in the program, we're going to talk about what kind of changes might we anticipate in the long term as a consequence of this pandemic. We'll look back at some of the previous events, major events that have had uh, impact on uh, nations and the entire world. So I'm looking forward to sharing a little bit of that with you. Uh, also, we're going to share a conversation with Dr. Russell Moore, The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. Might be useful information given the fact that we are all together in ways that this generation has uh, yet to see. So uh, looking forward to that uh, conversation. That's in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. First, to look at some of the day's headlines. Well, lawmakers unveiled a back-to-work plan for reopening the economy with emphasis on mass testing. This is a bipartisan group of 50 House lawmakers. They've crafted a plan to reopen the U.S. economy safely and help businesses recover from crippling mandatory shutdowns in the wake of coronavirus, the outbreak. Um, The exclusive first look uh, was acquired by Fox News at the Problem Solvers Caucus Plan, which outlines specific public health, economic recovery and long term stimulus plans. The group wants Congress and the president to embrace as the nation tries to emerge from this week's long quarantine and uh, growing mass layoffs and mass unrest. We'll get into that later as well. Well, apparently drones that are currently being used around the U.S. to enforce coronavirus lockdowns were donated by a company with ties to the Chinese government, raising concerns that the nation may uh, that the nation many blame for allowing the virus to become a pandemic has snuck in a powerful espionage tool into rival U.S. skies. Hmm. Meanwhile, Australia is the latest to call for an independent international investigation into China's management of the coronavirus outbreak and the origin of the pandemic, joining the U.S. in scrutinizing China's role. In Pennsylvania, lawmakers and residents who say government Tom, Governor Tom Wolf's stay-at-home order to prevent the spread of the virus is too strict are staging a drive-in protest in Harrisburg today following similar acts by states like Michigan, North Carolina, and others. It's spreading across the country. And could you have been infected with the novel coronavirus but not have known it, having reported no symptoms? Well, new reports suggest that many people have experienced the virus in this way, meaning COVID-19 may be less deadly than initially believed, but also complicating efforts to reopen the nation. And in a new class action lawsuit, Delta Airlines is accused of making it difficult, if not impossible, for customers to receive any refund as flights continue to get canceled amid the ongoing coronavirus outbreak. The Secret Service and the Treasury Department are warning individuals about counterfeit stimulus checks, and they're trying to help consumers protect themselves as the administration plans to mail millions of coronavirus relief checks to Americans, which began, I believe, mid-last week. And the coronavirus pandemic has decimated lives and livelihoods across the planet, 
and the staggering cost of the outbreak has depleted coffers of some charities meant to help those in need. Keep that in mind when you're trying to think about how to be generous and help. A pair of sisters have died from two separate global pandemics over a century apart, according to a new report. Now think about that for a moment. And the Chinese Communist Party and the Hong Kong government have used the pandemic as a golden opportunity to crack down on pro-democracy dissidents, according to one recently arrested political leader. Dr. Claire Guest, CEO and co-founder of uh, the British charity Medical Detection Dogs, reportedly said she believes dogs could sniff out as many as 750 coronavirus patients per hour, significantly aiding in the testing capabilities throughout the world. Now, the problem with that is... If a dog were to approach me for the purposes of sniffing out whether or not I have the coronavirus, I would either have a stroke or a heart attack in that process. And whether or not I had the virus, my life would end either way. Well, multiple states are seeing protesters demand easing restrictions. They protested in San Diego, in Phoenix, in Washington, among others. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer responded to protests Um, by threatening more restrictions. In one Colorado county, only county residents could travel on the roads. And while polling indicates that most back restrictions, another story notes that the polls, uh, uh, notes of the polls, none actually measure opinions regarding whether state governments should reopen their economies starting in May. So far, there have been no recent study revealing whether or not most Americans believe that moving forward, opening the economy is desirable. Meanwhile, another study finds hydroxychloroquine showing promise, and over a third of physicians already prescribe or believe they should prescribe hydroxychloroquine or another drug for COVID-19 infections. Again, it doesn't um, cure the disease. It does minimize and shorten the symptoms. Well, Bill de Blasio is encouraging citizens to report their neighbors who violate social distancing, tweeting, how do you report places that aren't enforcing social distancing? It's simple. Just snap a photo and text it to 311692, which led Christina Summers to call de Blasio the worst person in America. Wow, the worst person in all of America? Might be a slight overstatement. People are a little hysterical in places. New York has formed a coronavirus anti-discrimination response team, by the way. Well, lawmakers are close to a deal on Paycheck Protection Program. Democrats have stalled the funding with demands. Meanwhile, the squad want Congress to pass a bill canceling rent and mortgage payments during the pandemic. Wow, rent and mortgage payments. Samaritan's Purse is among a number of groups um, whose funding has been stripped by the World Health Organization. From a story in the New York Post, an administration official told the Post that efforts were underway to redirect every single pot of money from the WHO to other organizations. Large international relief organizations already are in many cases doing similar work, they said. Well, this won't sit well with the media already upset that Samaritan's Purse is allowed to have a presence in New York during the crisis. The fact that they're there is so offensive to the New York Times. And illegal drugs take a hit during the shutdown. Virtually every illicit drug has been impacted with supply chains dis- uh, chain disruptions at both the wholesale and retail level. Traffickers are stockpiling narcotics and cash along the borders. And the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration even reports a decrease in money laundering and online drug sales on the so-called dark web. But I don't believe these people qualify for small business relief. Well, let's at least hope not. On this day in history, 1999, the Columbine High School massacre takes place in Colorado as two students shoot and kill 12 classmates and one teacher before taking their own lives. 1971, 
The U.S. Supreme Court unanimously upholds the use of busing to achieve racial discrimination, desegregation rather, in schools. Also in 1971, on this very day, National Public Radio makes its on-air debut with live coverage of a U.S. Senate hearing on the Vietnam War. 1972, on this day, Apollo 16's lunar module carrying astronauts John W. Young and Charles M. Duke Jr. lands on the moon. 2010, an explosion on the Deepwater Horizon oil platform leased by BP kills 11 workers and causes a blowout that begins spewing an estimated 200 million gallons of crude into the Gulf of Mexico. The well would be finally capped nearly three months later. By the way, the price of um, crude is so low right now, they practically have to pay you to take it. On this day in history, 2018, U.S. health officials tell consumers to throw away any store-bought romaine lettuce and warm restaurants not to serve it amid an E. coli outbreak that sickened more than 50 people in several states. Finally, also on this day in history, 2018, the Democratic Party files a lawsuit accusing the Donald Trump presidential campaign, Russia, WikiLeaks, and Trump's son in, son-in-law of conspiring to undercut Democrats in the 2016 election by stealing tens of thousands of emails and documents back in 2018. Well, the vice president, Vice uh, President Pence, rather, says states have enough COVID-19 tests to start phase one of the White House recovery plan. The administration sought on Friday to alleviate fears about the availability of mass testing for the coronavirus, with the vice president telling reporters that states have enough tests to implement at least the criteria of phase one of the White House plan to reopen the economy if they choose to do so. A slide in the White House briefing room touted that the U.S. had completed more than 3,780,000 tests as of Thursday of last week. Many governors have expressed caution about lifting stay-at-home orders, saying they need more help from the federal government to make tests available. Meanwhile, protesters in several states have demanded the reopening of schools, businesses, and commerce. But the president said governors have to take responsibility and lamented false reporting on testing, saying everything is perfect. Well, that might not have been the best uh, word to choose in this circumstance, but I'm quoting the president. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a brief pause, but we'll be back in just a few moments. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a beautiful Monday afternoon. Well, I mentioned earlier there may be a bipartisan breakthrough Politicians have unveiled a back-to-work plan for reopening the economy with an emphasis on mass testing. Well, after spending weeks diving into coronavirus issues over video conferencing, this bipartisan group of 50 House members has crafted a plan for what's needed to reopen the economy safely and to help businesses recover from the crippling mandatory shutdowns. Well, the uh, plan that outlines specific public health, it also includes economic recovery and long-term stimulus plans. The group wants Congress and the president to embrace as the nation tries to emerge from the weeks-long quarantines. The bottom line is people, I think, are eager for a checklist. They want to understand what we think and it takes uh, what we think it's going to take to get everything moving again. That's a quote from uh, Representative Josh Gottheimer. He's a Democrat from New Jersey, and he's the co-chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus. Well, the Problem Solvers Caucus on Monday unveiled publicly its back-to-work checklist that's poised to be an influential framework in Washington in future rounds of coronavirus relief packages. The plan got the green light from the group of, pan, uh, of pragmatic lawmakers, rather, determined to deliver America some relief. What this checklist does is it shows 
that if you're sincere and you want to put partisan politics aside, you can actually roll up your sleeves and you can find some common ground that makes a lot of good common sense. That's a, re- a quote from Representative Tom Reed, a Republican from New York, co-chair of the Problem, Problem Solvers Caucus. It also shows that you can get the necessary votes at 218 and 60 to get it done in the House and the Senate. Well, the White House already released its plans for a three-phased gradual opening led by states, but it was panned by some governors and Speaker Nancy Pelosi, it is a political year, as being too vague and not stress, uh, stressing mass rapid testing and contact tracing. But at the top of the list for bipartisan lawmakers' uh, checklist is the importance of rapid mass COVID-19 testing at a scale that could be upwards of five times uh, greater than what's currently happening. The Problem Solvers Caucus checklist calls for establishing a uh, federal contact tracing database similar to how the federal government already tracks measles. The lawmakers say the supply chain for personal protective gear also needs to ramp up to cover workers in all essential sectors from food service to schools. Their checklist calls for K through 12 children and teachers having access to protective masks to return to school. In the short term, we need to do it to uh, get schools back open. Gopheimer says, again, one of the co-chairs of having teachers and students wear masks. That's part of the precaution we're going to have to take. If you're in the area in New York or New Jersey that's been hit hardest, you want to take every precaution. Well, good luck having kids keep uh, masks and gloves on during an academic school day and having enough to supply them for all of the days that they would be in close proximity with their classmates. Well, Democrats have scolded coronavirus, the lockdown demonstrators, as rallies have spread all across the country. Some uh, Floridians in the south part of the state staged a caravan protest to end coronavirus lockdown, demanding beaches reopen. Protesters uh, rallied against Washington's coronavirus stay-at-home order. Give me liberty or give me COVID-19, their signs read. Protesters, lawmakers demonstrated in Pennsylvania at the Capitol against stay-at-home orders. Not suitable, they or rather not sustainable. Protesters, lawmakers uh, demonstrated um, uh, there Earlier in the day, Nancy Pelosi says people protesting stay-at-home orders is really unfortunate. Now, they're not protesting stay-at-home orders across the board, but some specifics that uh, many argue cross the line. And I would have to uh, agree, for example, not being able to buy seeds, but being able to go to the grocery store to shop for food. People want to grow their own food. They can't purchase seeds or garden or mow their lawns in some states. There's a coronavirus um, a standoff, and there are photos purportedly showing the Colorado healthcare workers at odds with the anti-lockdown protesters. Let's hope it doesn't get um, doesn't get ugly. And Kellyanne Conway says governors physically distancing from common sense with some lockdown restrictions. Again, not the overall uh, lockdown, but some of the specific restrictions that have been named by governors. Um, has raised the ire of some citizens in those states. Meanwhile, Facebook has banned some pages promoting protests of stay-at-home mandates that challenge the government's advice about social distancing with the coronavirus pandemic. Says uh, company rep, unless government prohibits the event during this time, we allow it to be organized on Facebook. For this same reason, events that defy government's guidance on social distancing aren't allowed on Facebook. Now, this is an interesting precedent. What happens when the government is wrong? What happens if we're talking about not a pandemic, but a political uh, view? So it's an an interesting position 
uh, potentially dangerous position that Facebook has taken, although you understand their concern. Protests have popped up in various states among residents who disagree with certain stay-at-home guidelines. Many of the protests feature large groups of people closely gathered as the nation has been instructed to social distance in an effort to combat the spread of COVID-19. California, Colorado, Tennessee, Illinois, Florida, Montana, Wisconsin, Washington State, Texas, New Hampshire, Maryland, uh, Nevada, Idaho, Minnesota, Kentucky, Utah, Oregon, North Carolina, Ohio, New York, Virginia, Michigan, and Oklahoma have all seen some type of protest of stay-at-home mandates and policies. Well, a Facebook source noted that the company is aware that some people may seek to protest orders to stay home, but the company will only allow the protest to be promoted on the platform if the people follow social distancing guidelines. The company is focused on removing content that advocates for in-person gatherings defying government health guidance. And Washington State's Department of Health has recalled 12,000 coronavirus tests that were distributed throughout the state over concerns of possible contamination after finding the fluid in several tests were an unusual color. Health officials issued the recall on Saturday uh, after um, UW Medicine, a Seattle health system, that procured the test kits, raised an alarm about the potential quality control issues, the department said on Sunday in a statement. Though the quality control issues um, has only been observed in a small number of tubes of viral transport media, we adhere to the highest standard of uh, COVID-19 testing in Washington state. That's a quote from the Secretary of Health, John Weisman. Uh, We are working with our partners to have them discard the product and will work to replace them as quickly as we can. The viral transport media, or VTM, fluid is what uh, preserves the test specimens during transport. Some vials of the VTM were an unusual color and prompted UW Medicine to notify state officials, the department said. The thousands of test kits were already sent to local health jurisdictions, tribal nations, state agency partners across the state when the irregularity was noticed. Again, some 12,000 coronavirus tests over uh, possible contamination. Well, Oregon is uh, in its fourth week of lockdown. Boy, it seems so much longer than its fourth week. Residents can't enter state parks and mountains and in valleys now blooming with springtime flowers or go to the state's trademark wineries or breweries. With many businesses closed, as elsewhere around the United States, job losses are staggering. Still, Oregon is one of only five states expected to have the fewest COVID-19 deaths per capita as the peak reaches each state, according to researchers at the University of Washington, who developed a closely watched model. Even so, Oregon leaders want the peak to be well past before reopening the economy. We need, says Governor Kate Brown, to see fewer and fewer cases of COVID-19. She told reporters she didn't specify how many fewer cases there must be in order to reopen Oregon, saying that uh, they would be determined by experts and data. Oregon has at least 1,785 virus cases, and 70 deaths. That's according to a Johns Hopkins University tally on Saturday morning. Dean Seidlinger, who's Oregon's chief health officer, told the Associated Press that health officials want to see a sustained decline in both new cases and hospitalizations before recommending changes in mitigation measures. But again, the positive headline, Oregon is among five states that's expected to have the fewest deaths per capita. Governor Kate Brown detailed her plans for reopening Oregon in an interview with Dave Miller recently on OPB. The governor announced a pact with other West Coast governors to coordinate their response to the virus pandemic. That came after news that Oregon appears to be succeeding in keeping new deaths and infections down, but at great cost to the economy. 
On Friday, the governor spoke with Think Out Loud host Dave Miller about the prerequisites for reopening the state and possibly of uh, different approaches in rural and urban areas and the challenges facing Oregon's unemployment. Not a lot of new information, but you can find that interview online, uh, both in print and audio versions. It's worth, uh, worth checking out. Also, Governor Brown apologized for the delay in unemployment checks. She apologized to Oregonians on Friday for the big delays. I'm sorry this is taking so long, the governor said. She was speaking to Steve Dunn on KATU during a video conference interview. She said the state will go from 100 workers at the state employment department to 800 in the next week. Now, that was on Friday, so she may mean this week. We'll tell you more about that when we return in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, so stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on a Monday afternoon. By the way, if you're bored, I'm not saying bored with the show. I'm saying once the show is over, what, you know, what is there to do in life? I want to encourage you to take advantage of the opportunity extended to KPDQ listeners from Salem Media making the, uh, uh, video No Safe Spaces. It's a documentary about free speech from Adam Carolla and nationally syndicated radio host Dennis Prager. That is a must-see. In fact, so much so that Salem Media literally jumped into the movie business by streaming No Safe Spaces. Now, the message of the film is how free speech and tolerance is being blocked by intolerant forces who say they believe in free speech, unless, of course, someone disagrees with their particular views. Well, let me encourage you to check this out. I've seen it. I highly recommend it. In fact, it is a must-see. You hear that phrase often, but this uh, really fits here. No Safe Spaces is now available to watch for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com for $19.95. But for KPDQ listeners, you can use the discount code SAVE25 and enjoy a 25% discount. Now, that's uh, nosafespaces.com. The price, $19.95. Well, for everybody else, for you, save 25% off. With the uh, discount code SAFE25, no safe spaces, must see. In fact, we're going to talk with Dennis Prager on this program on Thursday about that documentary. I'm so looking forward to that. Um, NoSafeSpaces.com. Well, just before the break, I was telling you about the uh, governor who has apologized to Oregonians. She did this on Friday for the big delays in unemployment checks. We know that um, the system that Oregon currently has is... uh, woefully inadequate for the surge of unemployment um, uh, cases that are now uh, pending. She says, I'm sorry for taking so long. She was speaking to Steve Dunn on KATU. She said the state will go from 100 workers at the state employment department to 800 this week. She said the state is working as fast as it can to get the checks to Oregonians who have been laid off because of the um, pandemic. Just to give you a, a sense, Steve, she said during the interview, in the last three weeks alone, We've had over 270,000 Oregonians apply for unemployment. We're going to get every single dollar out the door, working hard to get those dollars in the pockets of Oregonians as quickly as possible. Now, this is in an environment where there are no dollars coming in. Uh, Tax filing was delayed, and not to mention safe taxes are not coming into the coppers either. Well, as COVID-19, the outbreak began to take hold of the state. The governor issued several executive orders meant to keep the spread of the disease in check. But the effects were devastating to business. Many were forced to close or cut back on services, and the result was immediate mass layoffs, hence the unemployment rate. The number of people who are filing for unemployment in the state has exceeded 147,800 who filed during the entire Great Recession. 
swamping the state's employment system at that time. The problem has been made worse because the state's computers at the department are so old and cumbersome, they simply cannot handle the numbers. Well, after coming under fire for not waiving the policy that someone filing for unemployment has to wait a week to receive benefits, she said late Tuesday, or rather Thursday night, she would work to remove that policy. In her interview with uh, Dunn, the governor also said there's no real uh, date for reopening the state, but it will be done in phases. A lot of criteria will have to be met before that happens, however. There is some good news for rural Oregon uh, counties that have been asking the governor to uh, let them reopen. She said those counties will be the first to open for business. We have a handful of counties that have very few or no cases, she said. Those counties will likely start to reopen sooner than counties in Multnomah, Washington, and others. Uh, Marion certainly where we're still seeing, frankly, some very concerning updates. She also said that she hopes students will be going back to school in the fall. That's rather ominous. She hopes they'll be going back in the fall, but she doesn't know right now. What about summer school? I'm not going to predict any summer school for Oregon students, she said, but I anticipate we'll be figuring out some creative and innovative ways to deliver education to our students. Thus saith Governor Brown. Well, an additional $600 per week in unemployment benefits has started going out as part of the coronavirus relief bill that was passed in March. Of course, you have to get unemployment benefits before you enjoy that uh, addition. But uh, the new payments combined with state unemployment benefits already are causing concern that some workers could be in a position to actually make more money by leaving their jobs. So paid to quit. There's a backlash building against unemployment benefits on steroids. For an economy already fractured by social distancing policies that are meant to curb the spread of this whole thing, the perverse incentive threatens to do further damage. Critics are arguing, according to workers, business owners, and economists um, who are now speaking out, it's a huge issue. A large slice of the U.S. workforce will make more money by not working than by working. David Henderson, who's an economist and research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institute, says the average state already gives $463 per week in unemployment benefits. When combined with the new $600 per week, that works out to something like $1,063 per week, the equivalent of more than $26 an hour or $55,000 a year. I don't know about you, James, but I'm thinking maybe we need to file for unemployment. Well, that angers some essential workers on the front lines on the crisis. I can't tell you as a worker who barely makes over minimum wage at $12 an hour, the whole thing is uh, complete. Well, we won't go on from there, but Otis Mitchell says he's upset. He works in uh, West Virginia transporting hospital patients to get medical tests. Um, He uh, added that he has unemployed friends who already are getting the extra $600 and that he prefers to work, but sadly, he'd make more money staying home. I work in a hospital of all places, and we're being compensated anything. um, We're not being compensated anything extra. He said he also knows people at uh, his workplace who are just wanting to get laid off completely because they'd get more money being at home. Well, unemployment benefits traditionally require a worker to be laid off to collect benefits, and so many people are not yet aware that the relief bill allows a person to quit or still collect, uh, or rather quit and still collect unemployment as long as they self-certify that they had to quit because of the coronavirus situation. The relief bill says that staying home to be the primary caretaker of children who are out of school counts as one automatically valid reason. So there's a lot of turmoil across the country with various elements of this pandemic. Later in the program, we're going to talk about 
the fallout of similar events historically and what we might anticipate. We don't know. We can only anticipate what could happen, uh, but it's rather interesting to consider in a, the broader historic context. Well, the coronavirus pandemic has uh, decimated the lives and livelihoods all across the planet and the staggering cost of that outbreak. It's depleted coffers meant to help those in need. The uh, shortfall of funds means that charities working to help um, the most vulnerable, veterans, uh, survivors of abuse, the disabled, the homeless, will no longer be receiving the money necessary to support their life-saving work. And some of their new clients are the very people who had been donors. Well, this global assault on the pathogen officially called COVID-19 has taken a pretty drastic human and economic toll, battering nonprofit groups, large and small, that provide vital services, crucial research, aid to uh, causes not backed by the public or private sectors. Jean uh, Shafroff, who's the author of the book titled Successful Th Philanthropy, How to Make a Life by What You Give, she says that charities that were struggling to stay alive might have to close their doors unless they can get donors uh, to up their gifts during this time. Uh, she serves on the board of seven charities, including the Southampton Association Hospital, NYC Mission and is the ambassador of the Southampton Animal Shelter. When people are not earning money, they're less apt to give money away. When funding decreases or dries up, programs have to be canceled, salaries might have to be reduced, and staff might have to be cut. She estimates that billions once dedicated to U.S. charities and Americans are notoriously generous have already been lost to the novel contagion. And mention it because if you're in a position to support the organizations that um, we support here at the station or organizations that are near to your heart. If you're giving tithes and offerings to your church, now is a time not to back away if you are in a position to continue to give, but perhaps to give a little bit more given our current circumstances. Well, what is it like to suffer from the coronavirus uh, weirdest symptom? We'll talk about that when we return. And also they're telling us that coronavirus not only destroys lungs, but doctors are finding it's damaging the kidneys, hearts, and elsewhere. We'll tell you more about that and how the uh, pandemics of the past have impacted uh, and transformed the world far more than um, uh, we might have anticipated. We'll get into all of that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I want to remind you that coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dr. Russell Moore. He is the author of The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home, uh, again, that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. What is it like to have COVID-19? That's a question many of us have wondered. Well, um, we're learning about different peculiar symptoms that accompany this whole thing. One is that people are seeing some peculiar bruises on their feet and can't verify it's a direct connection, but for some people with the virus, that is a symptom that they're seeing. Another is to lose one's sense of taste and smell. Uh, Grace Lawler uh, is a person who had COVID-19. She brushed her teeth. She realized she couldn't taste the toothpaste. Uh, then she took a shower and realized she couldn't smell her shampoo. And it struck her as rather odd, but nothing, um, nothing to be too worried about. She felt fine otherwise. Uh, her roommate... Uh, laughed about it, but again, not a whole lot was made of it. They didn't believe that uh, this was a symptom of anything, just, a, you know, some days you got it and some days you, you don't. 
Well, in a consultation with uh, Dr. Google, perhaps you consulted him yourself, she learned that a sudden loss of taste and smell can be a sign of the coronavirus. She went to a doctor but was told she couldn't be tested because at the time the clinic was only testing essential workers. Her doctor told her to assume she was positive for COVID-19, so she went home to quarantine. A few days later, one of her roommates was stricken with the same symptoms, although it wasn't quite as funny as it was the first time around. Uh, They settled in for a joyless 10 days of putting food in their mouths and then swallowing it. Eating would be the wrong word for it, they say, because eating is a pleasure. This was mechanical. Um, She bothered with it less and less. Now, maybe that's a symptom that, well, never mind. There was no point, she said, even if I had a craving for something, Um, And I had the item right in front of me. There was no satisfaction because you couldn't taste it. Well, a similarly disorienting scenario was happening elsewhere in Boston where another woman had come from New York to her mother's house to work remotely for her job overseeing e-commerce for a shoe company. She felt a little under the weather on the 24th of March, tired, some mild cold symptoms, but was otherwise fine until she um, made herself a shake and realized she couldn't feel the sensation of the cold but couldn't actually taste the ingredients uh, ingredients either. Uh, knowing it might be a sign of COVID-19, she went to a drive through testing center but was uh, turned away because, well, she had no other symptoms. Friends encouraged her to try some other strong flavors like um, sriracha. And later at the virtual um, uh, happy hour, um, the dares escalated. Well, bottom line is she wasn't able to taste anything, including some of the disgusting beverages that <laughs> Um, she was encouraged to try just for the sake of determining whether or not uh, she had COVID-19. Anyway, the sense of smell and taste apparently is one of the symptoms, as well as some peculiar markings that can only be described as bruise-like reddish spots on your feet, uh, apparently is another symptom. Well, the uh, new virus uh, kills by inflaming or clogging the tiny air sacs in the lungs and it chokes off the body's oxygen supply until it shuts down the organs essential for life. That's a description of what COVID-19 does. This is a result of exposure to coronavirus, the novel coronavirus. Clinicians around the world are seeing evidence that suggests the virus also may be causing heart inflammation, acute kidney disease and neurological malfunction, blood clots, intestinal damage, and liver problems. That development is complicated treatment for the most severe cases of COVID-19, the uh, illness that's caused by the virus and makes the course of recovery less certain. Well, the prevalence of these effects is too great to uh, attribute them solely to the uh, uh, storm of things that are going on in the body, a powerful immune system response that attacks the body, causing severe damage, doctors and researchers are saying. They say that almost half of the people hospitalized because of COVID-19 have blood or protein in their urine indicating early damage to their kidneys. Uh, That's very concerning. You may be someone without underlying condition, but if you uh, were to contract the disease, these are concerns that one would look for. Even more alarming, uh, the medical professionals are adding, is early data that shows 14 to 30% of intensive care patients in New York and Wuhan, China, birthplace of the pandemic, have lost kidney function and require dialysis or its uh, in-hospital cousin, continuous renal replacement therapy. New York's intensive care units are treating so much kidney failure, he said. They need more personnel who can perform dialysis and have issued an urgent call for volunteers from other parts of the country. They're also running dangerously short of sterile fluids, including uh, rather used to deliver that therapy. That's a huge number of people who have this problem. That's new. 
Um, it's very possible that the virus attaches uh, to the kidney cells and attacks them. So we're learning uh, all kinds of things that are being added to the list of things that happen to you during the contracting COVID-19. Well, coronavirus, we're being told by those who prognosticate about such things, uh, likely it will transform the world far more than did the 1918 flu pandemic. Now, one imagines it's the 21st century. We just shifted all of our activity and attention homeward. And once it's over, we'll just shift our time and attention back out to our workplaces and other places where we're, uh, we're active. But looking back historically, it gives us some interesting things to consider as we try to navigate through this latest pandemic. Uh, Stephen Dynan writes this for the Washington Times. He points out that the Black Death that struck Europe in the 14th century forced a total reordering, reordering of society, permanently rewriting rules between landowners and workers and between the church and the faithful. The influenza pandemic that swept the globe after World War I, by contrast, left barely a blip on American society. Well, all eyes are now on, of course, COVID-19, which could be as consequential as the Black Death or as fleeting as the 1918 flu or somewhere in between. The politicians, futurists, and others are wondering which uh, experiments, small and big, will have, uh, have staying power beyond the confines of the pandemic. The president, uh, noted germaphobe even before the outbreak, said the handshake greeting may become a practical uh, thing of the past. Architecture uh, uh, aficionados debate whether the rapid spread of the novel coronavirus will end the open office concept for the workplace. The business world is getting an emergency test of the possibilities and limits of telework, and plenty of employees are beginning to realize that in-person meetings may not be as essential as bosses once insisted. Schools are pioneering new methods of distance learning. The federal government is doling out massive payments to most Americans in what some Activists hope is a test run for a universal basic income concept. Spain is testing such a system as part of its own response to COVID-19, the crisis. I don't see that happening in America, at least not yet. Senator Bernard Sanders, you know, Bernie Sanders, the Vermont independent, said the pandemic should persuade Americans to ditch their health care system and embrace his government run plan. However, seeing how the government is managing all of this might uh, dissuade many from taking that path. President said the U.S. is realizing the dangers of globalization and must figure out ways to increase manufacturing in the U.S. and rely less on international supply chains. All of these are responses thus far. What the residual impact will be remains to be seen. The Los Angeles Times, uh, Joe Mazingo, wrote a column on the very same subject, pointing out that from the Black Death to AIDS, pandemics have shaped human history. And it gives us a bit more detailed history of how these pandemics have had an impact on the world. Now, I disagree with a lot of what he has to say on a number of issues, but the historic perspective, I think, is very useful. He points out that um, Hernan Cortez fled the Aztec capital in 1520 under blistering military assault, losing the bulk of his troops on his escape to the coast. But the Spanish conquistador unknowingly left behind a weapon far more devastating than guns and swords, and that was smallpox. It was unwitting, of course, but it was left behind. When he returned to retake the city, it was reeling amid a pandemic that would level the Aztec population, destroy its uh, power structures, lead to an empire's brutal defeat, initiating a centuries-long annihilation of native societies uh, from Tierra del Fuego to the Bering Strait. From the plague of Justinian and the Black Death to polio and AIDS, pandemics have 
violently reshaped civilization since humans first settled into towns thousands of years ago. And while the outbreaks wrought their death tolls and grief, they also prompted massive transformation in medicine, technology, government, education, religion, arts, social hierarchy, sanitation. Before the cholera epidemics of the 19th century, cities thought nothing of mingling their sewage and water supply, which is a rather disgusting thought. Now, he's not suggesting in his column that that's where we're headed, the kind of dramatic shifts that we've just um described, but he does make some interesting observations that I do think are relevant. And when we come back from the break, I'll tell you more about them. I found it rather fascinating. Uh, You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just want to remind you in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk uh, with Russell Moore. Dr. Moore is the author of The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. So looking forward to sharing that conversation with you a bit later in today's program. By the way, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blinn, sheltering in place, is engineering and producing today's program. Clark Hilton, also sheltering in place, is engineering and doing other technical stuff I have no idea of uh, from his remote location. Glad to have you with us and hope you are doing well. We've been talking about how pandemics of the past have shaped and reshaped human history. And I'm uh, quoting from a Los Angeles Times uh, column written by Joe Mazingo. Now, I wouldn't recommend uh, some of the conclusions he draws, but he does uh, give us some historical perspective that I thought was very useful. He points out that no one knows exactly how the COVID-19 pandemic is going to ultimately change the world. There are unforeseen circumstances and consequences that will lead to even more unforeseen circumstances and consequences. But stress cracks are already showing. Nations are turning inward. Rulers are seeking more authoritarian power. The decline of American leadership is accelerating. Economies are facing recessions. People are living in fear and distrust with many losing jobs and potentially facing poverty they've never experienced before. At the same time, scientists Technocrats, businesses are working feverishly to stem this pandemic and better prepare for the next one. There's little doubt new technology will rise from this epic crisis. So too might things less tangible. Americans, by and large, appear to be looking to science to save the day rather than politicians' uh, spin and partisanship. The virus could revive faith in the the inarguable forces of biochemistry deep in the fact-based universe. On another level, the abrupt disruption of routines that were so long considered by many unalterable, the long daily commute, the business meeting that requires a flight or two, the need to schedule children's every hour, the go, go, go mentality, opens the possibility of a behavioral reset for those who can afford it. Millions have stumbled on the ancient simplicity of an afternoon walk and many wonder if there might be a way to reduce some of the noise in their lives, keep the freeways a bit more open and the air a bit clearer. People tend to need a big shock to change their behavior. Marlon Bornett, who's a professor and chair of the Department of Urban Planning and Spatial Analysis at USC, says, in particular, he sees opportunities to fight a slower-moving, potentially far more destructive global disaster. Now we see our day-to-day habits can change more quickly than thought, he said. People have had the opportunity to telecommute. The reality is they didn't, uh, they didn't have to go to every conference. And we're getting a glimpse of what Los Angeles could look like if we uh, could get ahead of our transportation problems. And although many people from hotel maids to emergency room physicians cannot do their jobs online, those who can should consider it. If we have everybody telecommute a day a week, well, who knows what uh, difference that might make. Well, pandemics are famously idiosyncratic in the havoc they cause and the human adaptations that emerge in their wake. 
an adage among those who study those global infections. If you've seen one pandemic, you've seen one pandemic. (laughs) Together, pandemics and uh, epidemics have led to massive advances in public health that allowed cities and civilizations to grow and prosper. Germ theory, urban sanitation, vaccination, penicillin, better hygiene, isolation wards, and the scientific uh, method which brought rationality to modern medicine. Nations and societies rose and fell on the backs of pandemics. The Black Death, or bubonic plague that erupted in the 1300s, killing half the population of Europe, dealt the final blows to the feudal order of serfdom with waves of deadly outbreaks to follow for centuries, shaking faith in the Roman Catholic Church, and some historians suggest making possible the Renaissance and the Reformation. But the disruption caused by smaller epidemics, even more footnotes in, the, um, in history, have also had colossal consequences. Consider how the United States obtained the vast midsection of the country that allowed it to expand westward to California and become the most prosperous nation on earth. In 1802, Napoleon sent the world's, most, uh, the world's greatest army to the Caribbean to put down a slave rebellion and restore French rule in what had been France's most profitable colony, St. Dominique. But an epidemic of yellow fever devastated his troops, killing an estimated 50,000 and forcing his army to leave in defeat. Without the wealthy island colony to fund his grand plans on the American continent, Napoleon retrenched to Europe to face off with England. St. Dominique became Haiti, the first free black republic in the world, and President Thomas Jefferson bought 828,000 square miles of French territory on the cheap, stretching from New Orleans to the Rocky Mountains to Canada. So on the great cascade of human events, Kansas City and Denver, and by extension Los Angeles and Seattle and the Silicon Valley, owe a bit of themselves to that long-lost ancestry, a pestilence in the Antilles, yet a much bigger biological disaster, the influenza pandemic in 1918, which killed anywhere from 20 to 50 million people globally at the end of World War I, left mere ripples in terms of broader societal change. Some historians dubbed it the forgotten pandemic and even uh, referred to it as the great generation of American writers who lived through it, Hemingway, Faulkner, Fitzgerald, ignored or barely mentioned it in their works. Nothing else, no infection, no war, no famine, has ever killed so many in such a short period, and yet it has never inspired awe, not in 1918 and not since, wrote Alfred W. Crosby in An American Forgotten Pandemic. How this new virus will bend the human torrent is impossible to know. We're still crashing down the first rapid. With modern medicine and the current data on the virus, no one is predicting the next Spanish flu or Black Death But it is interesting to contemplate what kinds of changes we might enjoy or experience as a consequence of these events. Well, in other news, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled today that state juries must be unanimous to convict defendants in criminal trials. And that overturns the Louisiana second degree murder conviction of Evangelisto Ramos that resulted in a life sentence when a jury found him guilty with a 10 to 2 vote. Well, the court noted that 48 states and more importantly, federal courts already require unanimous jury verdicts in criminal cases with only Louisiana and Oregon holding out by accepting 10 to 2 decisions. Well, the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial is incorporated against the states under the 14th Amendment. That's a quote from Justice Neil Gorsuch, who wrote the majority opinion. He went on to say, thus, if the jury trials trial Uh, Right requires a unanimous verdict in federal court. It requires no less in state court. This, of course, will have implications for Louisiana and Oregon. 
The court also recalled that Louisiana and Oregon's acceptance of non-unanimous decisions originated with desires to minimize the effect of minority voices on juries. A committee chairman said that the purpose of the 19, rather the 1898 Constitutional Convention, where non-unanimous decisions were first endorsed, was to establish the supremacy of the white race. The court said Oregon's adoption of non-unanimous verdicts can be similarly traced to the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and efforts to dilute the influence of racial ethnicity and religious minorities in Oregon juries, end quote. Just a uh, glimpse back to Oregon's notorious racist history. Well, the court's ruling overturned its 1972 decision in Appadocia versus Oregon. Monday's 6-3 decision featured conservative and liberal justices joining on both sides, with Justice Gorsuch's opinion being joined by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Justices uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Clarence Thomas writing concurring opinions. Justice uh, Samuel Alito's dissent was joined by Chief Justice John Roberts and Elena Kagan, Justice Kagan. Alito uh, warned that the overruling of longstanding precedent marks an important turn if the court's approach is not limited to this particular case. Lowering the bar for overruling our precedent, a badly fractured majority casts aside an important and long-established decision with little regard for the enormous reliance the decision has engendered. Alito wrote, noting that Louisiana and Oregon tried thousands of criminal cases without requiring unanimous verdicts because they believe the Supreme Court's 1972 ruling was valid. Overturning that ruling, Alito argued, imposes a potentially crushing burden on the courts and criminal justice system of those states. He claimed that the majority brushes aside these consequences and even suggests that the states should have known better than to count on their decision referring to the Supreme Court. Louisiana voters, nevertheless, had approved a state constitutional amendment in 2018 to require unanimous verdicts for crimes committed after the uh, 1st of January 2019. And in other news, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will continue in his role after forging a deal with his chief rival to create an emergency coalition government, ending more than a year of political deadlock. That's a rather peculiar agreement, The deal averts what would have been a fourth consecutive election in just over a year as the country fights its coronavirus outbreak. Now, while the terms of the unity deal were not immediately clear, Israeli media reported that it called for a three-year period with Netanyahu serving as prime minister for the first half and Benny Gantz, his opponent, taking the job for the second half. Says Netanyahu tweeting following the announcement, I promised the state of Israel a national emergency government that would work to save the lives and livelihoods of Israeli citizens. I will continue to do everything for you, citizens of Israel. Hmm. I wonder if we could work something like that out here. Yeah, I doubt it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part by Liberty Coin and Currency. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, in his latest book, The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home, my next guest, best-selling author Dr. Russell Moore, explores how families make us who we are and how we understand this can liberate, uh, can liberate us to live without fear. A longtime pastor, a former dean of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and current president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, Dr. Moore brings theological insight and pastoral approach to this sensitive topic. He says that understanding the family starts at the cross. The storm-tossed family blends biblical teaching with everyday stories, giving readers, like you and I, a biblical perspective. 
Well, Dr. Russell Moore is president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, the moral and public policy agency of the nation's largest Protestant denomination. He's a frequent cultural commentator and ethicist and theologian by background and an ordained Southern Baptist minister. He is the author of several books, including Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. A native of Mississippi, he and his wife, Marie, are the parents of five sons. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, one of many, The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. Dr. Moore, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, great to be with you, Georgie, and thanks for having me. We are still uh, seeing the results of Hurricanes Florence and Michael, so the the notion of a storm and the devastation that can be left in its wake is very vivid in our our mind and in our thinking. The title of your book, The Storm-Tossed Family, uh, also produces vivid images of uh, the, the fact that a family can wreak Havoc, havoc, um, but that the cross can reshape um, that kind of damage. Explain the title of the book, The Storm-Tossed Family. Well, one of the things I've noticed is that there are a lot of people who uh, just assume if I, if I love Jesus and if I do the right uh, four or five steps, then my family life is going to be perfectly tranquil. Uh, and then they end up in a situation where they think, well, I just I don't know what to do about what's going on in my marriage or with my parents or with my children or or my extended family. Uh, and they think that somehow that means that something is, is wrong uh, with them. Uh, when in reality, uh, though, I think that that is to be expected. If you're you're either in a family crisis or you're in one and you just don't know it. Uh, because because part of what it means to be in family with one another is uh, is vulnerability, the possibility of, of being hurt. Now, the, your book is about the family, but family in light of the cross. Explain um, how one impacts the other. Well, if you think about uh, most uh, Christian churches have have crosses all around, and and sometimes we just become accustomed to that. But if you if you think about it for a minute, uh, what is the cross? It's a picture of horror. Uh, the, the most uh, absolutely horrific uh, method of execution that one could imagine, and it's a revelation of beauty. It's it's where God is is present with us, and I think the family uh, points to that. And in family, we have joy, uh, we have blessing, and we also have uh, a great deal of brokenness and, and possibility of of hurt. And so, uh, so when we when we find ourselves going through those those difficult times of family. Having that impulse just to withdraw or to somehow be be angry uh, with our lot in life uh, isn't isn't what God's calling us to do. And what inspired you to take up this topic of the family? Well, I found that so much of what I was having to uh, to deal with had to do with some aspect of family or other. Uh, sometimes it would be a, a single uh, young person who's saying, I've become a Christian, but my parents don't understand this, and I'm trying to figure out how to honor them, but at the same time to, to follow Christ. Or uh, people who are in marriages where they're going through difficulty and they don't really want to want to talk to people about it uh, because they don't want to be be judged, or a a situation like I had with a a woman who was, she came up to me and she looked around to make sure no one was looking, and then she whispered, would you pray for us? Our daughter uh, just called from her college and announced that she's an atheist now. And I said, well, yeah, I'll pray for you, but why are you whispering? And she said, well, I don't want people overhearing it because then, then they might wonder what we did. Uh, to turn her into an atheist, and I just thought that is that is so sad, especially given the fact that 
every family in the Bible, including God's, has prodigals. Uh, but but instead, we're living in a kind of American culture where family is really about winning and displaying. Family is sort of a, an extension of, of ourselves. And unfortunately, that, that filters down into the church as well. Hmm. So we should be surprised when we have a family and things go exceptionally well rather than the other way around. No, that's right. That's right. And we, we should not take it for granted. You write that we need practical wisdom on the family. The Bible gives it to us. We need to know how to honor our parents without being enmeshed with them. We need to know how to honor marriage without idolizing it. We need to know how to discipline the next generation in a way that is neither harsh nor negligent. But before all of that, we need to see the vulnerability of family within the prism of cross-bearing. And that's something of a challenge to us. Even if we're familiar with the scriptures, we may not necessarily make the connection. I think that's right. And and part of the problem is uh, sometimes there's a a tendency to idealize the family and and idealize the family in such a way that we don't even have the freedom to love our our families. There was a a report um, I'm sure you you saw a couple weeks ago uh, that was kind of good news, bad news on divorce. Uh, The good news was the divorce rate was going down. The bad news was that's because the marriage rate is going down. And one of the things that I've noticed when I'm talking to people who who are afraid to marry and pushing marriage back later and later is not that they usually have a low view of marriage. It's that they have this view of marriage that says, I don't want to go through what my parents went through with divorce or, or whatever. And so I'm going to wait until I find this perfect soulmate who's going to meet all of my, my needs and expectations. Uh, well, that person doesn't exist. Uh, which means that they're just constantly chasing this. But when we, when we see the family in light of the cross, then we have the freedom to actually love the people around us, our, our real parents, not the ones we wish we had, or our, our real spouse, not the one we imagine in our minds, and our real children, not the ones we compare with other people's Christmas letters. Now, is this idealization of the family, is that a unique American phenomenon, or is that just a, a phenomenon of modern life? I don't think it's uniquely American, but I think there are some some patterns in American life that have highlighted it. Uh, one of those things being social media. I mean, you've, you've always had the tendency to sort of compare family situations one to the other and to kind of present a, a false image. But social media makes that happen immediately. Uh, and so there, there are many people, if you look at, at studies showing that the more people use Facebook, the more depressed they, they tend to be. Um, a lot of that has to do with, with seeing what's going on in other people's lives in this sort of shiny, happy way and, and thinking, why don't I have that? And, of course, a great deal of that has to do with family life. Mm-hmm. Now, you make the point that bound up in a storm is both a blessing and a curse. And in both the blessing of rain and the peril of a storm, we lose all of our illusions about control. And family is like that, too. We have a life-giving source and blessing, but also the excruciating pain that sometimes is a part of uh, of family life. Um, why did you use the phrase storm-tossed family to describe these relationships that we are inexorably uh, in for the entirety of our lives and that uh, help to shape us and make us who and what we are? Well, just the other day, uh, literally three days ago, I was on a, on a flight and I got up from my seat and walked back to the laboratory area when we hit turbulence. And I, I didn't have a seatbelt on and the flight attendant's yelling, just hang on. And uh, it was a terrifying experience, even for somebody who's flying all the time. 
And later I thought about it, this is exactly what, what would be experienced by someone uh, who, for instance, is traveling with Jesus across the Sea of Galilee when a storm hits. You, you have this sense of not only do I not know what's going to happen to me, but I don't have any control over it. And I think that's exactly what happens sooner or later with family. We start to realize I can plan out my life and map out my life, but one telephone call, one incident can can change that completely. So people who, who think, well, I just want to avoid risk and I don't want to be involved in, in risk are really going to have a very difficult time being being involved in family relationships because that's that's what comes along with love. Um, you write, our family backgrounds are meant to tell us something about who we are and, more importantly, what we are not. We aren't self-creating, self-sustaining gods. We are part of someone else's story, backward into the past and perhaps forward into the future. You and I are each the product of a near-infinite series of decisions that other people made. If your great-great-grandfather had not... Um, emigrated from his homeland, you might not be able to read the language on this page. If my grandmother had not decided to disregard her parents' wishes and elope as a teenager with that older man, I would not exist. And it goes on from there. Helping us to understand the context of family and the things that we can glean from it for good or for ill that uh, give us not only shape us as individuals, but give us a perspective on the world. Well, I think it, it reminds us that we're not our own gods, mm-hmm. and, and we're not uh, in charge of as much as we think we are. Uh, but, but the other lesson can be, uh, can be unfortunately learned, too. Some people think, well, I'm just whatever my parents uh, modeled, or I'm, I'm just whatever my family background uh, was, which, of course, is not true at all. And you're, you're just not, you're not destined to live out whatever the mistakes uh, happen to happen in your, in your family. We're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Dr. Russell Moore. His latest book, The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Russell Moore. His latest book is titled The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. In looking at the, um, the family, um, the biological family, what can we glean about the family and the church, and are they interchangeable? Does one inform the other, or the or do both inform one another? I think they both inform one another. I think I think we're we're intended to understand uh, something about the church from from our biological families about what it means to be brothers and sisters, and vice versa. And that's one of the things I think we've lost, especially in contemporary American life. Uh, we we use that word brother and sister. But I think sometimes we think it's just a, a more spiritual way of saying friend or, uh, you know, the, the word that we use when we've forgotten somebody's name at church. Hey, brother, <laughs> how are you doing? Uh, but that's not – the New Testament speaks of that language in a really radical sort of way. We, we really belong to uh, each other, and we need each other within the life of the church. One of the points you make is that we are connected in such a way that what I do, the choices that I make, whether or not we're biologically connected – um, my choices and decisions have an impact on others, and that connection is uh, is more meaningful than perhaps we recognize. Uh, also, when you use the term like brother or sister, if I didn't have a good relationship with my siblings growing up, uh, these terms might be empty. They might be charged in ways that uh, the recipient of the uh, of the, the the title might not understand. 
Yeah, I think so. I think that's one of the reasons why sometimes people uh, wrongly want to abandon uh, terms like brother or sister or even father uh, for for God. Uh, Some people will say, well, there are a lot of people who had terrible relationships with their fathers, and so let's find a different word for, for God. But uh, that's the very thing that we need, and, and even uh, maybe even especially those who have had terrible uh, relationships with their human fathers, to, to find a, a loving father in, in God. And so I think that, that the church can be a place that can heal uh, whatever sorts of associations we tend to, to bring into it. And, and what I've found is that people who know that, um, who know I have a difficult time uh, grasping God as Father, or I have a difficult time relating to people as brothers and sisters, they're usually going to be fine, because they know uh, sort of where those, those points of vulnerability are, uh, as opposed to people who, who don't know that and just, just sort of find themselves unable to, unable to, to grapple with, with God, but they don't understand why. In your chapter on man and woman at the cross, you write about marriage and the relationship between men and women in that uh, relationship that ultimately produces a, a family. There are challenges that have always been in place. There are challenges that are unique to the time that we live in. What does the scripture ha- have to say that would help inform us about that relationship in the family? Well, I think one of the things that we we notice is that we live in a time where women often are uh, are valued simply in terms of their sexual uh, attractiveness or availability to men, uh, which is which is not the way that the Scripture uh, speaks of this. Um, and so we we live in a time that sometimes assumes that it's very free and and liberated uh, when it comes to this point, but really is is not. It's it's enslaved to that same old pattern. Um, and so what what the Scripture uh, pictures is instead a situation where man and woman need each other, complete each other. They're not in competition with one another. They're not in rivalry with one another. Uh, but both are needed to carry out the mission that, that God has given us. You have a chapter titled Reclaiming Sexuality, and that could be interpreted in a number of ways. But what, is the, what do the Scriptures want us to know about sexuality that we may misunderstand today that challenges our families? Well, I think we live in a time right now that, on the one hand, see sexuality as the most important thing uh, out there. And by that, they usually mean uh, sexual activity is the most important thing in life. And at the same time, wants to see sexuality as being meaningless. It doesn't really matter. Uh, you can express it in, in any number of, of ways. The Bible takes a very different view. Sexuality is important, and that's why it's uh, defined within the, the context of, of covenant marriage. Uh, and why? Because it, it points beyond itself. It points to, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's one of the reasons why that pursuit of sexual pleasure uh, that's out there is always going to end up in, in disillusionment and disappointment when it's, when it's unhitched from God's purposes. And I think we're seeing that right now. I think we're seeing a lot of uh, what I call refugees from the sexual revolution, of people who have sort of bought all the promises of sexual freedom and are finding that it it just can't keep its promises. Now, in your book, uh, The Storm-Tossed Family, you write about marriage, uh, sexuality, divorce, the family, parenting, discipline, and so on. Um, What what does the cross tie, how does that tie in as a metaphor in helping us to understand what the family is supposed to be about and in light of the cross, the impact that it has on the family? Well, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, and, and if you're going to save your life, you'll, you'll lose it. 
And I think that applies uh, to the family in, in every uh, single way. In every one of these arenas, we have uh, the opportunity to take on hardship, to sacrifice ourselves, uh, to pour ourselves out uh, for someone else. And so uh, the, the, the person who uh, is taking care of that child with, with Down syndrome and says, oh, well, I'm wasting my life because I'm not uh, traveling around to see the pyramids or, or, or whatever. That person is not wasting his or her life at all. The man who is uh, at his wife's bedside uh, with, with dementia and she can't even remember uh, his name, he is, he is living out something that is deeply, deeply beautiful. Uh, coming out of of the cross, and so uh, God is is redeeming even the most difficult aspects of family life if we just if we just look around and see it. You have a chapter titled "Parenting with the End in View," that, which reminds us that the the children that we bear are not children always; that they will one day be, we hope, responsible uh, men and women who may bear some responsibility for our care as. Uh, as elderly adults, what do you want to say to parents about keeping the end in view in the process, the sometimes very difficult and challenging process of raising a family? Well, I think sometimes parents keep uh, keep the adult uh, in view, but but by adult they mean college age, and so there's a lot of uh, pressure put upon children to succeed academically or to succeed in terms of a of a of a skill uh, to work, and all that's good and, and appropriate. But I think we need a longer term view of a, a trillion year view of what it is that God wants from our children. So to to cultivate that sense of uh, who I am in Christ and and what it means to give myself uh, over for a cause that's that's bigger than myself. And I mean, frankly, what I see a lot of are really really exhausted kids and really really exhausted parents who are in this sort of frenzy of activity uh, just to be able to fill out uh, college applications one day. And I don't see often that same level of concern for uh, what's it going to be for my child as a, an elderly person in a nursing home one day to be able to reflect back on the gospel. Um, I, I think that's what's needed for us. What advice uh, do you have for struggling uh, family members today whose home life is a challenge, but they aspire to uh, live a life that's pleasing to God in light of the cross and to raise a family that's, uh, that's honoring to him? Well, I would say if they know they're struggling, they already have a leg up. Uh, because it's the people who just think their situation is normal uh, that, I, that I worry about. Uh, I would say those people just don't pretend uh, find people that you trust and you love and say, look, would you pray with me uh, in this? Can you help me in this? This is what's going on in, in, my, in my marriage or in my parenting or in my relationship with my parents or whatever it is. And I guarantee you God will, will bless that. Uh, just just don't, don't protect yourself with pretending. That's, that's the temptation that all of us have. Yeah, isn't it, though? The book is titled The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. Dr. Moore, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it very much. By the way, the uh, book is published by uh, Broadman and Holdman, and you can find it in bookstores. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. A couple of announcements. Uh, Georgia and Tennessee have announced plans to reopen some businesses uh, winding down their coronavirus stay-at-home orders. The details are being rolled out. The governors of both Georgia and Texas this afternoon announced new plans to bring their state's economies closer to full force 
with signs that the coronavirus outbreak is slowing in those states. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp said certain businesses, including restaurants, gyms and hair salons, that's kind of a surprising collection of uh, reopenings, can reopen beginning this Friday. Meanwhile, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee, he confirmed his state's stay-at-home order previously extended to uh, April 30th will end on that day. Wow. Meanwhile, we're being told that there an agreement on the $470 billion phase 3.5 coronavirus stimulus package is now imminent. Um, negotiations from the House, uh, the Senate and the White House are close to finalizing an accord on the so-called 3.5 phase uh, response to the pandemic. The response will include $310 billion for the Paycheck Protection Program, which offers grants to small businesses struggling to make payroll. Uh, the $350 billion fund depleted last Thursday. And a separate provision worth $60 billion includes $50 billion in loans, $10 billion in grants, would be allocated to economic disaster loans. Also included $75 billion for hospitals, $25 billion for coronavirus testing. The total of the package would be north of $470 billion. Wow. Wow. That's uh, pretty ominous. Four in 10 Americans are lonelier now than ever before, we're learning, as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. A survey of about 1,055 Americans have been asked uh, to think about how the outbreak is affecting them and revealed it caused loneliness to hit new heights for 44% of those surveyed. Now, loneliness is not a new phenomenon. It's not unique to this situation, this circumstance, uh, but it is new to many in this generation. And the question isn't whether or not loneliness is a reality, but how do we respond to loneliness? And sadly, we have not um, in in this time, and I'm using the word this generation rather broadly to include those who are living today, uh, particularly those of us who are younger than our parents and grandparents, if it not had to really test the limits of our patience, of our endurance, of our ability to survive under difficult circumstances. But according to this study, these feelings of loneliness were found to be part of a wider effect. If social distancing and quarantining continues, a fifth of respondents said it will have major implications for their mental health. Um, commissioned by the University of Phoenix, the survey found Americans have a wide variety of concerns at the current moment with health, mental and physical first on that list. The results revealed that respondents top concerns uh, to be their loved one's health. And of course, we all share that concern, followed by their own. Uh, other respond. I'm, I'm gratified that it's in that order in an age when. Uh, we put ourselves first more commonly, and that's considered virtuous. Other responses, uh, respondents rather, were worried about experiencing increased anxiety and not being able to pay their bills as a result of the pandemic. And these are legitimate concerns. Three in 10 were concerned about missing out on celebrating milestones. 27% were worried about feeling prolonged loneliness or depression. And again, as I think back in my grandparents and even my parents, the things they suffered, my grandparents through the Great Depression, both world, um, world wars, facing nuclear annihilation and how they managed uh, to focus less attention on themselves and more attention on what just needed to be done. I'm hoping that this is a moment in which this generation, the, those who are living now, will have an opportunity to emerge stronger than before, recognizing, you know, we're more resilient. We have greater capacity than we imagined. I can actually spend less time focusing on myself and my particular needs and looking outward to the needs of others in ways that um, I didn't think possible in our um, in our age. 
I was so gratified this weekend because, um, you know, we can't go to church in the classic sense, but we can go to church in the technological sense. And it's been fun visiting churches uh, over these last few weeks. We were at Southwest Bible as one of the churches that we visited. I so enjoy hearing Pastor Scott uh, clearly teach the, the word. And he made reference to uh, the 18th chapter of the Psalms. And I was uh, reminded once again um, that we can have confidence when we put our trust and faith in him, that he is precisely all that we need. Uh, the psalmist, this is uh, David writing after he had been um, liberated from uh, Saul and his enemies, uh, from the hand of Saul and from the hands of his enemies. And he writes in the first few verses, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I have been saved from my enemies. But just in those first um, two verses, I love the words that are used to describe who he is and what his word is to us. I love you, Lord, my strength. He is our strength. The Lord is our rock, our fortress, our deliverer. Um, And he repeats, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And I just took such um, great uh, strength and consolation in recognizing that whatever is happening out there, whatever is going to happen in the future, whatever changes are afoot, I can put my trust and confidence in him. I can stand firmly on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my strength. He is my fortress. He is my deliverer. Whatever happens in Washington, whatever happens in uh, the hands of those medical professionals who are feverishly working at some sort of solution, he is ultimately my fortress and my deliverer in whom I will take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold. I can take a deep breath recognizing that he's got the whole world in his hands. I can rest in that and trust in him. And I hope you will do the same, that you will find fellowship and comfort in him. If you are a believer, you know that the Holy Spirit is present. His word promises he will never leave or forsake us. So we can even cast our loneliness and our concern in that area on him. Well, I so appreciate spending this time with you. I want to thank uh, James Blinn for producing. And I want to mention that today happens to be Clark Hilton's birthday. And I want to wish you a very, very happy birthday, Clark. It's such a pleasure to work with you. Happy birthday, my friend. All right, we're out of time. I want to thank you for um, listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.